I have a six-year-old that's really into learning, learning books, learning apps, learning shows, but I'm really grateful to have found a learning podcast for her. From the creators of the hit kid podcast, Who Smarted, and Netflix's Brainchild, comes the adventurous world of mysteries about true histories, affectionately known as math. Every episode follows Max and Molly, who have just been recruited to a secret order of problem solvers. On an adventure through time, packed with puzzles, hidden equations, history, and laughs, making learning cool. My kid really appreciates these. They're only 15 minutes long, and she can stay engaged. She likes the characters. It's perfect for ages six and up. New episodes drop every Thursday, each stacked with so much laughter that your kids won't even realize how much they're learning. So tune in to Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. Hello, you sentient little ADHD balls of stardust. This is Struggle Care, the podcast about self-care by a host that hates the term self-care. And today I have Dr. Sasha Hamdani. Did I do it right? Yeah, it was beautiful. Why don't you introduce yourself? Hi. Okay. So my name is Dr. Sasha Hamnani. I'm a board certified psychiatrist and an ADHD clinical specialist and someone that intermittently fools around on social media. Love it. Okay. So Mm -hmm. not only did I send you the link to log on like three minutes before we started recording, I actually have not even really talked to you about the topic or sent you any questions. That's fine. And I'm hoping that maybe you can just roll with that. Yeah, that's what I do best. Random rolling with things. Me too. People are always like, would you like me to send you some questions? And I was like, no. No, stressful. Okay, so here's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about adult ADHD diagnosis. Oh my God, love it. Okay. Because I got diagnosed as an adult. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting to talk about how it gets missed as a child. Yeah. And like, how do you know when to go in? And like, there's just so many interesting things about it that like, when I finally got in front of a psychiatrist that understood ADHD and understood its adult presentations and understood its adult presentations in women. Yeah. She was like, oh, I clocked you from the moment you started talking about it. (laughs) And she asked me all these questions about my life. And I was like, yes, 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 yes. And then what really was wild to me was when, because I was still like almost gaslighting myself. Like, am I making this up? Is this just because I had kids and now I feel scatterbrained? Like, you know, because I had a really successful career. I did pretty well in school with the exception of like some addiction issues. But what really finally got me to stop feeling imposter syndrome was when she started asking me things about my childhood and not things like ADHD symptoms. When she said, have you ever been diagnosed with a learning disability? And I was like, yes, I was diagnosed with auditory processing disorder, dyslexia, and dysgraphia. She was like, oh, well, there's a really high incidence of comorbidity with particularly auditory processing and ADHD. And I was like, oh, okay. She was like, did you have any addiction issues as a child? And I was like, yes, I went to rehab at 16. She's like, oh, Because there's a very high crossover comorbidity between addiction and ADHD. And the one that really freaked me out was when she said, did you ever have any vocal tics as a child? Hmm. And I was like, yes, 
I totally did. It wasn't very long. It was like in a stressful period after my parents got divorced, but I developed this weird vocal tick and this weird thing with light switches. And I can't remember if there's anything else. And then I was telling her, like, I just didn't think I was ADHD because, like, I did so well in school for so long. Now, I didn't do my homework, like, ever. And she was like, well, I mean, it was just on and on and on. So... I know there's probably a lot of listeners that either are ADHD or they're like wondering if they're ADHD. And so I thought maybe we could just start with like, if somebody were to ask you what ADHD is, how would you like answer them on an elevator? So this does happen to me on elevators. So if if I was talking about what is ADHD, just like a little blurb about it, I would say it's a neurodevelopmental condition that presents with inattentiveness hyperactivity, impulsivity, and it doesn't need to be all of those, but it can be like an amalgamation of all of them or one specifically more than the other. But basically, this is something that you were born with. And this has progressed through your life and is, in fact, you know, a lot of people have beef with the disorder part of ADHD. But I think that's really important because I think that it causes dysfunction. And even if like in your story, Casey, like going through your life that you did well, there were other facets of your life that were like exploding, right? So there's a disorder part of it. It's not just smooth sailing. So ADHD causes dysfunction in some capacity. Well, I also thought what was interesting was like, okay, so like I went to school and there were some bumps along the road, but like I also like went to college and went to grad school. But also like I changed my major because like the first one was too hard and the first one had too much math and the first one had too much reading or whatever. And so what was interesting to me was thinking about Like, number one, what could I have done if I had actually had my full capacity available to me? I mean, number one is a big thought in and of itself, right? Because I think a lot of people that are going through this process, especially people that have late diagnoses, there is a mourning period, right? Because you're just like, what could I have done? I wasted all of this time. And that's, I think that can be, that's something that should be acknowledged because it is a common experience but also something that could benefit from a little bit of reframing. Like what you went through is like if you had gotten a diagnosis earlier, yes, maybe life would have been different. But during that time, you were also building coping skills and you were building like collateral circuitry and trying to compensate for some of these things. And maybe some of those alternative kind of things that you arrived at are really going to suit you now that you have a diagnosis, that you have a possibly medication, that you're addressing it appropriately now. So it's, I mean, not lost time, just different. Well, what's interesting is that she said like, so it, it happened during the pandemic. So I was doing like a virtual visit and I laugh all the time at how like, I wonder how different this would have been if it hadn't been a virtual visit, if I had like gone into the office, right? Because I would have like woken up and gotten ready, gone to the office, like sat there, like had this calm conversation and been trying to like recount things. But what happened was we were on a video call and she said, so what makes you think that maybe you have ADHD? And I was like, well, like, I feel like I can't remember things unless they're like visual to me. And and I started talking about my kitchen and how my kitchen's always messy, but I'm trying to get it functional and I have to do these four things every night, but I can't remember the four things unless they're written down. And I like took her into my kitchen and started like explaining my system for keeping my kitchen clean. And she was like, you could like see her eyes like get wider and wider. She's like looking at me pan across the kitchen and talk about my kitchen. And it's funny to me because I feel like, 
she probably wouldn't have had that experience of me if I was like sitting in her office, but her actually seeing my space and the like nine, I swear that I looked like that meme of the guy with like all of the conspiracy board with all the strings where I was like, so I hang these here and then I have to put this here so that the dishes go here. And if I don't forget the dishes, then I have this thing over here that reminds, and she was like, oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, and that's part of the cool thing about being able to do telehealth because you're actually getting to see the patient in their environment, which gives you a huge amount of data also, which is great. So I feel like, so, you know, you and I both do TikTok and there's a lot of content out there about ADHD, some very helpful, some kind of random and maybe not that related. But what I think is interesting is that there are a lot of people right now sort of listening to things about ADHD and for the first time in their lives going, do I have ADHD? Like, I'm sort of relating to this. And I'm curious, like, how do you as a psychiatrist that works with ADHD, like, how do you view that phenomenon? Like, are you on the now everybody thinks they have it because of social media? Or are you on the like, we have a, you know, there's been an epidemic of undiagnosed people that are coming out of the woodwork now? Like, how do you see that? (laughs) I don't know. So here's kind of my two cents on that, because I think this is related to that, right? So I think why people like the crux of what you were saying, like if you boil down the two sides of that, it's like, how do you feel about self-diagnosis, right? Like, is that kind of like where people would go? And so my view is, I think self-diagnosis is kind of something that we all do, like whether or not it's from social media or not, like you're trying to explain your own internal environment. So I actually don't really have a problem with self-diagnosis. Like, Uh, trying to get information and learn about yourself, whether it's through social media or through a podcast or through like talking to other people that you know. What I do have a problem with is when people get overly entrenched in these things. And like, I'm telling you, like I am a psychiatrist. I've spent my whole entire life working up to this point and spending all my effort into this kind of academic training. And there are days where I'm like, I don't know if I'm hungry or sad. <laughs> like, I don't know what that is. <laughs> I cannot adequately describe what's happening. So I think it's difficult when people are trying to self-diagnose and they get absolutely like entrenched in this has to be ADHD and it can't be anything else. Because then I think what you're doing is you're limiting yourself because it could be a lot of different things. And ADHD is so nuanced. It could be anxiety. It could be a thyroid disorder. It could be like some underlying learning disability. It could be so many, many, many different things. And so I think that, yes, if you have suspicions, learn about your brain, understand it as much as you can get from other resources. But if it's accessible to you, find a way to corroborate that information or to discuss that possible diagnosis with a medical professional, because I think that's where you're going to get the most comprehensive thing. So whether or not it's like this huge burst in like I think with COVID, we were all on our phones more. So I think that there was just a lot of time where people became more introspective and they had this new information out to them. And they were like, oh, this looks like me. Also, we all had this seismic shift in what we were doing, right? We were previously like out and about and multitasking. Now we're at home and teaching our kids at home and doing all of this. Like a lot more responsibility was thrown on us in a small period of time. So I don't think it's this epidemic or... I don't even know what you would call it. I don't think it's like this huge rapid burst of people that like new diagnoses coming out of nowhere. I think these people probably had it and it was just like, okay, now we're starting to realize it more because of this unique spot in time. Yeah. So there are certainly a lot of kids that get diagnosed with ADHD. 
And I remember being 16 and being in a partial hospitalization program because I had a lot of addiction issues and mental health issues. And there was a kid in there that was ADHD. And I remember him like not being able to stop moving. He could not stop moving. He could not stop talking. It was almost like compulsive. And then like the next day he came in and they had medicated him and he like was and he started crying and was like, I can't do anything now. I can't do anything now. And I feel like I've just always had this picture of what ADHD looks like as sort of a stereotypical, like young white boy that isn't focusing in class and is being really disruptive and is always getting in trouble in class for not like, you know, getting really poor grades and not being able to pay attention. And so that was not me. So I'm curious if you have any insight into like how so many diagnoses. Why we all thought that? <laughs> yeah. Like, why did we all think that? And like, why is it we're like, are there other presentations that were just like missing in childhood? Like what factors could make a child go undiagnosed or like fly under the radar despite having this disability? So I think we're getting better. But yeah, like I know when I was growing up and things like that. I was diagnosed in fourth grade, but it's because I presented like a boy. Like I was super hyperactive and I was off the wall. And I literally, like it came to my parents' attention because I started a riot in my classroom. Like I got all the other kids to stand up on their desk. So like as disruptive as one could be, that's what I was doing. So I think that clinically the presentation, that's what kind of stuck out. And I've thought about this a lot because everybody has that like... <laughs> young, hyper boy. That's what they think of with ADHD. And I think it's become problematic because a lot of practitioners grabbed hold of it. I think what they were grabbing onto was the dysfunction part where they were like, if it is like they are disrupting the entire classroom and they can't progress through learning, it's causing dysfunction. But they were skipping over all of these mostly girls who were inattentive. They were sliding by their classes, but they weren't doing as well as they could. And they weren't like, appropriately building relationships or doing things like that, that's going to aid them that when things actually get hard and when they're like, maybe it's like middle school and high school, now they're dealing with like social things too, where now they're victims of impulsivity and judgment issues and other things like that. And they can get into like, bigger, scarier, problematic areas. But by that time, it's like, you don't have it as a kid, you're fine. And so like, then from that point onwards, girls go through puberty, and then they're gaslit. <laughs> you didn't get it. You didn't have it as a child when really they did. It just presented differently. Well, and I remember listening to someone say that like, ADHD isn't about not being able to pay attention. It's about not being able to regulate your attention. And that the way that shows up for a lot of people is like the young hyperactive boy that can't pay attention in class. And when I was talking to my psychiatrist and she was asking me about my experience in school, I told her, like, I remember liking school. Now, I didn't like the structure of it. Like I was kind of that kid that was a little bit, but I liked learning and I found it really easy. And once they identified the auditory processing and moving to the front row, it was easy for me to pay attention because I thought it was interesting. And I would listen. And the way that the, my school was set up is that if you listened to the lecture and what was happening in the class, I would retain it all. And then when I go to take the test, I would remember it all and I would get hundreds 90s, 95s on the test. However, 
I never did homework. Yeah. Never did homework. I was so fast at my, a lot of classes, the way they were structured was like, okay, do this worksheet. And if you finish first, then you can start on homework. So, or they're saying homework is if you don't finish the worksheet. And I was working so quickly that I either always finished everything in class or I finished it and then did some other thing. But the work that never got done was anything I was required to do or structure on my own time. And what was interesting about it is I think about that age is like, and it was a problem. Like I got in trouble, but nobody really pushed it that hard because I was still a straight A student. And I was like forging my parents' signatures on the like notes thing that I wasn't doing homework. And even if you would ask me at that age why I wasn't doing homework, I don't think I would have been able to verbalize like I am today, because I can tell you today what would happen is that they would say what the homework was and I would think to myself, I'll remember that. And then I wouldn't. Or I would think, okay, I'm going to write that down. And then I would shut the journal and it would disappear from my life. It's fine. I would never remember to take it out and look at it again. And there was after school and even my little after school care, like, but there was nothing after that that was like, and now you have to sit down and open it up and recheck the list and look at the, like it disappeared from my existence. And what happened was I did well in school until we hit high school where they restructured how they weighted the grades. When suddenly, you know, it used to be, okay, we'll do a lecture on chapters one through three, and then the test is on chapters one through three. And then I got to high school and it was, we'll do chapters one through three in class and you'll go home and read chapters five through 10. And then the the test will be on chapters one through 10. And I was incapable of doing work outside of class. Mm -hmm. So that's so common with ADHD because, you know, we hate structure, but we need it. So like within the confines of a classroom, you may be able to be like, okay, I understand how this goes. And as long as you're adequately engaged in the material and it's still kind of interesting to you, you can keep up and you can process a lot of information in a small amount of time. When you pull that structure away and you go home and you're expected to self-motivate yourself or stay organized without those kind of structures in place, it's nearly impossible, especially if you don't know how your brain is working. It's really difficult to do that. And especially as a child, like, how are you supposed to do that on your own? Hard. So as parents, like, if you don't know your kid has ADHD, if the kid doesn't know they have ADHD, I think it's really hard to parent that kid and kind of lead them the right way too, because their brain works differently. Plus the impulse control of like, when I'm at home, the amount of like executive functioning skills it takes to be like, I could go watch TV. I could go hang out with my friends, but I will sit down and do homework. I didn't have it. So it was so fascinating for my psychiatrist to go like, well, that's because you were interested. You could pay attention because it was interesting to you. Like it was like a weird, almost like aligning of the stars that you just happened to be interested and then, of course, I was I never did well in math because it was never interesting to me. So I thought that was fascinating. I don't know how it's interesting to anybody. I think that there's, a, you know, with ADHD, to me, I feel like it's an interest-based nervous system. Like you regulate and you turn on and activate and you turn off and deactivate based on what you're interested in. So if there's something that you're engaged in, you fire and your neurotransmitters are working and you can like process a tremendous amount of information, maybe more so than a neurotypical person, 
But if, if you can't get to that spot where you're engaged, it's like nothing is happening. Like things aren't firing. Okay. So I want to ask you specifically about the criteria when we come back from this little break. I've never met a free trial that I didn't like. The problem is, is that I often forget to get out of them before they start charging me. But I don't have that problem since I started using Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. I love how the dashboard shows me this month's spending compared to last month, and I can clearly see my spending habits. Plus, they'll help me create a custom budget and keep my spending on track. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you, up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll even deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of 500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash struggle. That's rocketmoney.com slash struggle, rocketmoney.com slash struggle. Hey, if you enjoyed my episode on IEPs and you want to listen to more podcast episodes about IEPs, I want to tell you about another podcast you should check out. It's called Understood Explains. This season, the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Ortube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. You might have heard me talk about IEPs on my episode, and this latest season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP, and it busts common myths about special education. I checked out these episodes, and I think that they are a great place for you to go after listening to mine. They go into a little more detail and answer a little more in depth about what an IEP is and whether your child needs one. So listen to Understood Explains by searching for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. Okay, we're back. And here's my question. So when I was looking over the criteria, when I was first trying to question whether I had this diagnosis, it talked about inattention. And it talked about often fails to give close attention to details or make careless mistakes. And I think what was hard for me was not understanding like at what frequency was considered clinically significant because it wasn't like that was happening so often that I was like, I remember the TikTok of the girl like crying in her car and being like, I think maybe I'm just stupid. I can't remember anything. Like that wasn't my life. Like I was super successful. I was very responsible, but there are these like key moments in my life that I could point to where I would read something and I thought I knew what it said and it said something different and it caused me to miss a midterm or not turn in a paper on time. And, and it wasn't like I'm not being responsible. It was like I, I had it planned out. I, I was going to do this on this day and this on this day. And then I go to class and it's like, oh, it was due this Monday, not next Monday. And I remember like at one point I really wanted to get a PhD, but the programs I wanted to get into, you couldn't make less than a B in your classes and your like master's classes. And the one C that I made was because of one class where I misread the syllabus, the date on the syllabus. And I remember being like, I don't understand how I'm doing this. And so again, it wasn't like a thing that happened every day or every week, but there was like these handful of times in my life where I would like miss an important meeting or, or, or like that. And I never understood like how I could be so stupid. 
Yeah. I mean, I cannot even tell you how much I relate to that. And I think that's kind of why ADHD is such an important thing to discuss because of these lapses in executive function and these like gaps. It just like deteriorates your self-esteem, right? Because you're just like, I'm dumb. There is literally no other explanation for this. But I think that what helped me... So when I was in medical school, like one of my very first exams, I had a neurobiology exam and I was like, this is awesome. Like I, like it was cadaver based. So like we were looking at uh, like cuts of the brain and I was like, so, I mean, it was gross how much I enjoyed that. Like, I, like, I was like, this is so interesting. Like I understand the anatomy because it, it was visual. Like I'm engaged in visual stuff. I did the test, finished before anybody else. I'm like, I'm fully a genius. This is great. Like it, every question was easy to me. They posted the grades later that day. And I had gotten a 32%, which is like, I didn't fail. I like, like, I don't know what I was doing. And I was like, what in the, I thought I did well. And it's because I didn't turn over the test. So I literally did not flip the sheet. And so I remember at that point, like I had been by myself for a little while. It's the first time I've been away from home. And I was like, I'm dumb. <laughs> it was like, that's it. I don't know what this is. Like, that's dumb. And what helped me and like my parents were like trying to help me make sense of that. And this is like, I was diagnosed earlier, but like, I didn't really understand that it was ADHD. So finally around that time, like I was starting to put together the pieces. And so my poor dad was like trying to like help me understand this better. And he was trying to understand better. And he's like, your brain just moves too fast. And so you're processing way too much information. And so things fly by. So he's like, we just have to figure out a system that works better for you. And I literally did not figure that out until I was well into residency. But like, that was so helpful for me, because I'm like, okay, it's not dumb. It's just I'm doing too much. My brain is doing too much. It's processing too much too quickly. And so obviously, if you're doing it so quickly, you're going to make mistakes. And I feel like I guess I always thought to my head like, oh, well, like everyone makes mistakes like those. Yeah. No. <laughs> I mean, maybe. But it was like, I mean, but I had like a handful of them. And I guess I was under the impression that it had to be something happening to you like daily or weekly to be like clinically significant. But then when I was telling my doctor, like, I mean, there was the time that I missed the midterm. There was the time that like that. And she was like, yeah, that's like clinically significant that you have like four or five instances in your life where something that really mattered to you was like bungled because you like missed a detail. And I think what was hard for the grownups around me is that I never went home and did my homework. And yet, like, I was a theater kid who would prep, prepare, nail the star role, and then have the entire script memorized. And they were like, well, you know, it must be that you don't care enough. It must be you're not you're trying. Because if you can do that skill in this area, why aren't you doing it in this area? And so there was like that mismatched. Like, is that part of it? Like, is that a thing? Like, I feel like if I had been consistently in deficit across like every area that maybe that would be something else, or if I was like consistently performing, but it was almost like the patchwork of when I was able to excel and when people were like scratching their heads, like, how could you not be able to do this? Interest-based nervous system. You were interested in the other stuff and you weren't in that. Like, so there are those, like with patients I hear all the time where they're, you know, I'll have like the kid and then the parents in the room and the parents are arguing in front of their kid. 
like at me <laughs> and it's just like they can't have ADHD because they can focus on their video games for hours and I'm like yeah because that's interesting to them like that is something on their neuro slot machines right I mean like this is <laughs> stuff that is releasing a tremendous amount of dopamine they are able to engage in this if you are like would you like to play Minecraft or would you like to read out of this algebra textbook? They're going to be like, mm. <laughs> which one do you think you're going to do a better job focusing at? Like, it just doesn't, like, I think to me, it's a little bit different because I have ADHD. So I kind of understand that flip side of it, of like having it and also treating it. But like interactions like that, where parents are so frustrated, I'm like, I understand the frustration and I understand how this may seem so contradictory, but like, if you can boil it down to like, what are you interested in <laughs> and what are you not? And the stuff that you're not interested in, how much dysfunction is that causing you? Is it like, I can kind of get by or is it, this is non-functional. I can't get by. This is not going to happen. That's going to indicate where, what the clinical level of severity is. Like, do we need to address this or not? And what's interesting is like when I, the first time I started reading through the criteria, I had a hard time relating. But then when people who either had ADHD or were experts in ADHD would talk about what the experience of ADHD is like, then I would start to relate. So like when you talked about your brain is moving too fast, like all of a sudden I have a thousand sort of memories and experiences that come to mind. And one of them is like, I don't know if your school ever did this, but they used to tell us in school when we had a test, like, first, read through the whole test, then come back and start to take it. And I was incapable. And they would even, I, there was a one time where they did a test where it was like, the last question was, don't do any of the questions, because it was like a little, like, see if you can whatever. And it wasn't just, I don't have time for this. I'm too smart for this. It was like, it was almost like painful to slow my brain down enough to like read each word without like, I didn't, it's like it worked, it didn't work as well. And so like I had to move fast and I've had that experience with like, if I'm interested in something, I can read about it for hours and hours and hours, but then I'd have like one form for something that I needed to fill out. And it was almost like, I can't make my brain like look at each word. You know what I mean? And so all of a sudden, when people are talking about that experience, I'm going, oh, this, it shows up here. It shows up here. And I remember one time taking the like self-rated score. And actually, let me, let's take a break and I'll tell you about my, the existential crisis of my self-rated score when we come back. Okay. Remember in 2018, when Border Patrol separated thousands of refugee kids from their parents, deported those parents back to their home countries while keeping the kids in the United States? Well, believe it or not, six years later, there are hundreds of families who have still not been reunited. Although we as a community may feel hopeless at times, I recently learned about an organization called Al Otro Lado, which works to reunify families. They provide holistic legal and humanitarian support to refugees, deportees, and other migrants in the U.S. and Tijuana through a multidisciplinary, client-centered, harm-reduction-based practice. Since 2018, they've reunified over 100 refugee families ripped apart by Trump's zero-tolerance policy. Once reunited, Al Otro Lado helps each family find legal representation, housing, and the counseling that they need in order to heal and get on their feet. You can find the link to donate to El Ultra Lotto in the description of this episode or go to gum.fm slash charity and donate today. 
You can also consider volunteering with the organization, which offers opportunities that are both in-person and virtual. The best way to get involved is by filling out an application on their website, alotrolado.org slash volunteer. That's A-L-O-T-R-O-L-A-D-O. Lynn, this time of year, parenting can be such a fluster clucks. You've come to the right place. I'm Lynn Lyons, and I've been treating anxious families for over 30 years. I'm Lynn's sister-in-law and co-host Robin Hudson. Join us for Fluster Clucks, a podcast for parents who worry. Wait, that's everybody. Yeah, these last few years have felt like one long anxiety attack for so many. Why do you think parents are always surprised that a podcast about anxiety relates to them, even if no one in their house has an anxiety disorder? Well, worry is human. Everyone does it. And anxiety shows up when we face uncertainty. All the parenting tips you've taught me have been essential. I love to break it down into skills we need to manage worry in our families. We've covered so many topics, depression, burnout, meltdowns, perfectionism. Don't forget scary mothers-in-law. Right, but of course that's not my mother-in-law. Because that's my mother. And a listener. As a psychotherapist, I like to teach parents and kids how to respond to everyday moments in healthy ways. Managing anxiety really can be taught. It really can. And I'll even tell you what to say. We talk about serious stuff, but without being too serious. Anxiety wants everything serious. Anxiety doesn't stand a chance when we're laughing, even about the tough stuff. Okay, so let me tell you about my self-rated score. So I remember getting to the questions and there was one where it was like, you have difficulty finishing projects, like you always leave projects undone. And I had recently redone my third floor. We have like a game room slash den slash, and I had redone it and I got so into it. And I mean, there were so many steps involved and like I did it and I completed it. And I remember thinking like, no, I don't leave projects undone. And so I said like, no, I don't leave projects undone. And then I like needed to go get a drink or something. And I walked down my stairs and on the landing of my stairs were all of the tools and supplies that I had used to redo my third floor three weeks ago. Okay. (laughs) And I looked at it and I, I mean, I was passing by every single day and I realized that the, oh, Like, okay, in my mind, I completed the project because the room looks the way I want it to look now. Mm -hmm. But I never, I always struggled to like clean up after myself or to like put my hammer away or like figure out what to do with those two frames that I didn't hang in the room. And I, it was like an epiphany where I was like, oh my God, I don't finish things. Like when I'm over it, I'm over it. And it just sits there. And then the other part of it, was I like went down, I got my drink and I like, you can picture, I was like, like opening my little soda, thinking about it and walking up. And then I like looked in the room and I remembered that, I mean, I had my mom come in town to help me with this room. And part of that is because I think it's fun to do things like that with my mom. But the other part of it is because I've learned in my life that when I'm in the middle of a big project, I hit this like lull in the middle where I don't want to do it anymore. But if my mom's there, she'll be like, let's just hang the pictures. Let's just hang them. We can just do it right now. And I won't want to do it, but I'll do it because she's like, let's just do it right now. And then I was like, oh my God, I do have trouble finishing projects. It's just that I've created all of these like compensatory behaviors And I didn't even realize like, that's why I like my mom to come over when I'm unpacking. That's why I invite my mom when I want to do some big project that when I am doing little projects, I'm never putting things away afterwards, that that's all that 
same behavior. Yeah. So recently I started working on an app, like an ADHD app. And like, I don't know anything about that, right? I don't know. I don't know anything about tech. I don't know anything about data. I didn't know where to start. And so I had all this big ideas and I was researching into this and and like figuring out what I wanted to do. And like in my brain, I was like minority report. I was like, everything is like (laughs) moving around. And I'm like, I am a genius. And I like couldn't execute any of that stuff. I'm just like, I can't do this. And like, because it gets like, you get so interested in everything and then it suddenly gets overwhelming and then you're like, (laughs) recoil. (laughs) And so what helped me is exactly what you were doing with your mom. I got my sister involved and she's the one who's like a secondary brain doing that executive function for me. Like, okay, you made it this far. What are the finishing steps? Let's do this. Let's do this. And like trying to keep yourself balanced. So I think that a lot of people, especially people diagnosed later in life, they might have difficulty looking through that initial criteria because they're like their variables are confounded by their compensatory mechanisms. You know, it's like, yes, maybe you would have met criteria, but you do this really well. And so I think that especially for women, we are very good at masking symptoms and like societally, it's just not, you know, I think boys get a lot more latitude. And so like girls, we just have to kind of toe the line and figure out how to make it look like it's working. And so like a lot of it gets skipped. Well, I can see how if you were to go to a psychiatrist that maybe still, even with all that expertise, just has that picture of that little hyperactive white boy, like they don't even know enough experientially to ask you past the, do you finish projects? And you're going, oh, yeah. Okay. But do you really like, let's talk about what does it look like when you feel like any, like it's hard because not everybody that is trained is like really actually super knowledgeable in ADHD. And I remember the other one was the, when it talks about the fidgeting, like often fidgets or taps with hands or feet, squirms and seat. And I remember being like, no, I don't do that. Like I don't fidget. I don't tap. And um, again, because I was thinking like somebody, some little boy that like literally can't stop moving. And I remember laying on my couch one time and I was like massaging my jaw because my jaw is always really, really tight. And the reason it's really tight is because I tend to tap my teeth together all day long to the beats of songs that get stuck in my head. Fidgeting. <laughs> so I'll be like concentrating and I'll be like, this like all day. And it, again, I had another light bulb moment where I was like, oh my God, I can't stop moving. It's just that I had learned as a girl who no doubt had been told like Casey stopped moving. Yeah. And I I developed a way of doing it that wasn't visible to others that I wasn't even like totally aware of. And then I had this one other one where because I went to rehab at 16, I went to what was referred to as a therapeutic community. And one of the things that they did there, there's a lot of great things I learned. And there were a lot of things that were like not super helpful. And they tended to take all of my behaviors and make them like a moral issue. And and I learned how to basically like stamp out a lot of behaviors during that time of being institutionalized. And so when it got to often interrupts or intrudes on others, has trouble waiting their turn, blurts out a question before it's been answered, talks excessively. So I remember reading those. Those are like the social component ones. Yeah. And initially answering no to almost all of them because I don't do those things often. And then I started thinking about my time in rehab 
and about like every week we got concerns and they're supposed to be like addressing behavioral concerns. And the concerns I always got were like, I never forget the first one was take the cotton out of your ears and put it in your mouth. And then I got a concern about like, you won't stop interrupting people and you're so self-centered. Like you're answering questions. You'll hear someone ask a question across the room. What time does the van leave? And you'll answer it, even though they're not talking to you. Like you need to mind your business. Or the biggest one was that like when people would ask me questions, I would answer them before they were done asking the question. And they would say, Casey, you need to stop. You're not listening. You're not listening. And I would say, I am listening. And they'd say, why are you interrupting? And I'd say, because I already know what you're going to ask. And they're like, well, that's really egotistical of you. Like, you're such a know-it-all. And so all of these behaviors were couched to me like I was being selfish, self-centered, egotistical, arrogant. And don't get me wrong. I was, in fact, all of those things as kind of like a shitty, drug-addicted 16-year-old. But actually, it was just ADHD, like I did talk excessively. I do interrupt people. And so as an adult, I'm sitting there going, okay, I don't interrupt people when they're asking me a question, but it's because I've learned to bite my tongue. I'm still answering their question halfway through and not listening to the rest of what they're saying, because if I don't get what's in my head out of my mouth, I'll forget it. And so I have to concentrate on it so that I don't forget what I'm going to say. But in, in concentrating on that, I, I now can't hear what you're saying. And I'm trying to find the socially appropriate time to interject it. And I did not realize that wasn't neurotypical. Like, I did not realize that that is what that criteria is. I just had learned to stamp out the external behavior. But I, I like, I wasn't actually changing what my mind was doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's so common. And I think that's why. So like when you're looking at masking or obscuring your symptoms for whatever reason, like whether it's purposeful or not, a lot of times what you're doing is you're not changing that internal behavior. You're just changing how you respond externally. And so I think that's kind of what what becomes problematic in terms of diagnostic kind of things, because if you've been masking for so long, it's hard to know, like, is this a real thing? Is this what I do? What? Because you're looking at your internal symptoms. And so I think that's, it's difficult sometimes for a provider to truly get to the bottom of things, right? Because you're, what they're appreciating and getting data on is external criteria. So what would you say to someone who is maybe listening to this, or they've seen other things, and they're going, well, I kind of relate to those things? Like, what should next steps be if that because I think the other thing is like, this is really sad to me, but I've had a lot of people tell me I brought this up to my doctor and they said that, you know, because I'm not in school, it doesn't matter. Or because I'm, you know, because I am doing okay at work, like it doesn't matter or that's just a thing that kids have. Like, I've heard that a lot. And so I feel like people are a little bit hesitant to know who they can actually talk to about it. So, you know, and that's part of the reason, like even getting to that spot where you can talk to someone, that's such a privilege in and of itself, because a lot of people don't have that access to care. So I say the first step is just educate yourself as much as possible. Like at the base of everything is a better understanding of yourself and your brain. So learn as much as you can about that. And there's so much 
that you can kind of learn about an ADHD brain and how it's working and how it's um, functioning and try to work on behavioral modification that's independent of medication. Maybe you're going to be someone who needs to be on medication. Maybe you need to do both. But I always like doing that behavioral kind of imprinting and and working on those and stemming from understanding what your patterns are because of two reasons. One, it's going to eventually kind of help functioning. But two, it's just like such a number one, validating experience. And two, it gives you a little bit of grace. Like this isn't me. This isn't a moral failure. This isn't like a problem with intrinsically me. My brain's moving too fast and this is what it's doing right now. So I think that gives people, I don't know, I think it gives people just this level of comfort and understanding so that they have this judgment-free place to grow and expand from. And then my last question is, if somebody finds that they do meet criteria or they do get this diagnosis and sort of the next question posed to them is, you know, do you want to try medication? And a lot of the feedback that I get from people is, well, I'm not in school anymore. And actually, there's this like very specific demographic of people and it's like stay at home parents that will say, well, I'm not in school and I don't even like go to a job. So like they kind of feel like that's what medication is for. Oh my God, since when is parenting not a job? Right. Like I'll never forget my doctor telling me like to do a tolerance break on Saturdays and Sundays and of my medication, just like not taking it. And I remember I had to come back like three weeks later and be like, I'm sorry, I'm a mom. I actually have more to do on Saturdays and Sundays that I need like my executive functioning for than like when I'm sitting at a desk. So I'm curious if you could speak just maybe generally about, you know, how do we make those sort of decisions about medication and what can medication help with outside of that sort of stereotypical like studying? I'm not the one who can make that like, right. As a practitioner, our job is to educate the patient, but it's like sheerly like, ego if I'm saying like, I know better when to start medication versus you. Like the patient is the one whose internal experience really matters. So if they're like, this is what I'm having dysfunction with, I am really having issues kind of moving forward. As long as there isn't anything barring or I'm worried about any like comorbidity or like medication addiction issues or anything like that, they should be able to say like, hey, I think I need to start a medication because I've done these behavioral modifications. I'm not able to sustain them or keep them up or or I'm not able to see, I have sustained them and I can't see enough benefit from them. And by the way, like with medications, I think everybody is so like laser focused on stimulants as being the only medication option. There's so many other things besides stimulants that you can treat ADHD with. So I think it's worthwhile having a conversation and just being open and honest with your doctor. Like, here's where I am. This is what I've done. This is where the dysfunction still lies. What are my options? And just having that collaborative back and forth. And I think for me, a big part of it was, okay, there, it wasn't a matter of like, I can't do this thing. And so I need medication. So I had this idea in my head that like, if I can't do something, then I deserve or then I like could qualify as someone who can try medication. But it didn't occur to me that like, okay, I can do the thing, but it is taking me so much time, energy and effort. 
and I'm using three times as much effort to get this thing done, whether it's getting my household tasks done or paying my bills or returning phone calls that like, okay, I'm getting them done, but at what cost? Like, is it just my baseline productivity that I should be judging? Or, you know, is there room there for, wait, you mean other, like I said earlier, like, wait, other people just decide to do their laundry and then get up? I know. Like some, it's that that, like fish in a water, like you don't know what wet is if you've been in the water so long. I think it is a matter of just kind of understanding. And honestly, even prior to having discussions with your physician, it's having discussions with yourself and figuring out like, what is this? What am I experiencing? What is this level of dysfunction? Because it's not your job to figure out if it's normal or not. It's a practitioner's job to figure it out. But like deciding within yourself, is this something that I want to discuss and find out more about? Like I've had my own suspicions. Let me see if this is worthwhile to me to talk about. Okay. So this is my actual last question. What could you tell people? Like, do you have like maybe provider red flags? Like, Let's say that they go to their provider. Is there something that if like, let's say if I came to you as a friend and I was like, I saw my provider and they said X, Y, Z, that would make you go, ooh, uh, I think maybe you should go find a different provider. Because I feel like a lot of people are getting really discouraged and they don't know whether it's, oh, I'm not a doctor. I should just listen or whether it's like, "Mm, I need to go ask someone else. So a couple of things that come to mind are stuff we've talked about. Like if they're saying you did too well in school for this to be a factor. Like theoretically, I think they're trying to indicate that it's not causing dysfunction, but school is not the only metric for that, right? If they're saying you're not a kid, red flag. If they're saying things like you've gotten this far, does it really matter at this point? I've heard that before. Like that's dumb. Don't listen to that. Those are kind of some of the other things. And again, it's really difficult because like these are all hypothetical situations and you don't know what kind of led up into this case. But those are kind of the things that if you're hearing that or if that's kind of the undertone that you should be like that may not be accurate. And that might be more reflective of or like an underlying like either knowledge deficit or just like a bias. Yeah, they might just feel that way. Yeah, that's kind of, those are like the ones where it's like context couldn't really help a provider saying that. <laughs> like the only thing I could think were was maybe like, eh, is like if you had another comorbidity that could be explaining like ADHD symptoms, but even then like, mm. <laughs> Yeah, I found that, especially in the realm of really any neurodivergence, like whether I was looking for someone to talk to about a possible autism diagnosis for a kid or my own ADHD diagnosis, like I found that I really needed to ask a lot of questions on the front end of the provider. And I know not everybody has this privilege, but if you do, really asking for someone and like, how much ADHD do you work with? How, how, what do you know about adult diagnosis? You know, like asking some questions about that because. I found that when it came to neurodivergent issues, I had to find someone that had specific experience in like current. Yeah. And also looking on like their websites and things like that. A lot of people, they talk about that stuff if they're passionate about treating it. Awesome. Well, where can people find you if they want to follow you, learn from you? Tell us everything. So... 
on social media. So I'm on YouTube, I'm on uh, TikTok, I'm on Instagram. It's the Psych Doctor MD and Doctor is D O C T O R. A book about ADHD is coming out January 3rd. And I didn't know you hated the term self-care, but it's called self-care for people with ADHD. (laughs) I love it. I don't hate it from you. I only hate. And the thing is, is that there's no other term. That's kind of what I hate about it. Like there's no other term. So I do use it. I hate what it has like come to represent. So basically that's kind of like the, because I get it. I'm a psychiatrist and I'm supposed to talk about medications all the time. But at the same time, I think going through this journey with ADHD, I really understand the benefit of one, understanding your brain and two, the behavioral modification, because I think that's really important. And so that's kind of the basis of the book. And then that's kind of the bones of, of the app, which will be released in winter. Um, And that's called Focus Genie. And so it's the Focus Genie on Instagram and TikTok. But basically, that is something that is like just behavioral modification in your hand. So it'll, it teaches you about your brain. It teaches you about here are things you can actually do. These are areas of dysfunction. What is the term procrastination? Like all of these different things. And then tools you can use with it, like how to break down your to-do list, how to do a task timer, how to do body doubling, how to do, like having all of those options. So it's, it's like, it's what I created that I should have used in medical school. Like if I had this, my life would be so much better. (laughs) I love that. Okay. And the release date for the book is January, 2023. Yeah. January 3rd. And then the app. Okay. So by the time people are listening to this, the book will be out. Okay, great. So go buy the book. Everyone go buy the book. (laughs) If you want to, please don't hate it. (laughs) They're not going to hate it. It's, it's going to be good. Yeah. And then the app will be, so if the book will be out, then the app will be out too. So the app is, I'm just, I'm like so proud of it. It's so cute. And what's the name of the app? Focus Genie. Ooh, Focus Genie. I already love it. It's so cute. And it's got like this little dude, <laughs> this little Focus Genie. And it's it's cute. And so like part of the thing is when I was doing research and like I for myself was trying to find an app I liked and for like to help me and then to refer to my patients and every single one I used, I'm like, oh, this is so boring. I can't like I couldn't even get through the trial period. I'm like, I cannot maintain this. This is painful for my brain. And so this is like fun. It's colorful. It's engaging. It's like little hits of dopamine as you're going through, but you're learning at the same time. It's, it's great. I'm picturing like, you remember the old school, like Clippy, the paperclip in Microsoft Word that would show up? I mean, legit, can you imagine me like, it's like he shows up and he's like, looks like you're trying to do your homework. We're like, looks like you're trying to do laundry. Do you need some help? I love that. <laughs> it's like essentially that. There's like a little cartoon genie that kind of helps and guides you through the process it's it's the cutest (laughs) okay that's amazing so everybody go out download the app get the book thank you so much and um this was wonderful thank you well thank you for having me i'm so excited of course no one told us the truth about parenthood why This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. 
I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us 